With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Franz Dost, the principal of Scuderia Toro Rosso, and you are listening to me Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, Tom Clarkson here, and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by the new Bose noise-cancelling headphones 700. Now, with Frank Williams no longer playing an active role at Williams F1, my guest this week is, believe it or not, the second longest-serving team principal in the pit lane. He got the nod from Dietrich Mateschitz to lead Toro Rosso back in 2006, since when he's overseen the team's transformation from bit part player to bona fide Formula One constructor. I'm talking, of course, about Franz Toss. Franz has been with Toro Rosso for 14 years, but his first contact with F1 came earlier, first with Ralf Schumacher and then with BMW when they were engine partners with Williams. And like so many Austrians involved in motorsport, it was a fascination with 1970 world champion Jochen Rindt that got him interested in the first place. When I first suggested that we sit down and do this podcast, Franz was surprised that people would be interested in his story. But as you're about to find out, his career has been a fascinating ride with many unexpected twists and turns. He raced against Stefan Beloff, for goodness sake, and I bet you didn't know that. Our conversation meandered effortlessly from one topic to another, including that famous Sebastian Vettel win at Monza in 2008 on Toro Rosso's Day of Days, to Franz's management approach with Red Bull's younger drivers. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Franz, thank you for coming on the show. It's, it's lovely to have you on. Now, you are the second longest serving team principal in the pit lane. When I say that, does that surprise you? Not so much, yeah, because um, when I look around, there are many people whom I know since long and they are also still in here and regarding the team principals. Um, I'm not aware that I'm the second longest working team principal in Formula One. But uh, maybe it's something good, it's something not so good. I don't know. I don't care about such statistical things. I appreciate that. But does, do you stop just for a second and take any pride from that? Because a lot of guys have come and gone in the time that you've been here. Yeah, but there are different reasons behind this. And... Uh, uh, Maybe I was lucky uh, that I am still here in Formula One and I like the job, I must say. I love to work in Formula One and I hope to continue another couple of years. Let's cast our minds back to 2006, your first season. What was it like back then as a team boss? Because, of course, Flavio Briatore was still around back then. There were Ron Dennis's and all these guys were still around. Was it a very different atmosphere, do you think, in the, in the team principal meetings compared to now? It depended on the topics. Um, there were a lot of uh, discussions. It was um, 2008, 2009, when uh, we were at arbitration uh, with uh, Toro Rosso because... You know, the original philosophy 
from Red Bull was that uh, A, we should educate young drivers from the Red Bull driver pool and B, um, we should use all the synergies with Red Bull technology. And this is how everything started. I remember back in 2006, we had uh, the car from Red Bull, which they raced the year before. It was the V10 uh, engine in there. And uh, we had an air restrictor because this was the time when the others used the V8. And uh, it was good racing. We were competitive. Then um, 2007, we had the first, I call it now, uh, Red Bull technology chassis. But we always had another engine in there, yeah, because um, Red Bull originally had a Ferrari contract. And when then Adrian Newey came there, they decided to change to the Renault. And therefore, we got this Ferrari engine. And uh, Red Bull racing was out with the Renault engine and we with the Ferrari engine. Therefore, we never had completely the same car. It was in the back always uh, different. But um, 2007 and then especially 2008, we were successful, maybe for some of the other team principals too successful. And then uh, they started to work against us. And um, um, in my opinion, we did everything right. In those days, we matched to the regulation. And then I remember back to the team principal meetings when they were quite aggressive uh, towards Toro Rosso, towards me. Uh, but to be honest, I didn't care. And uh, I remember once when uh, Ron Dennis said, yeah, yeah, uh, we will close the doors. And I said to him, you are not the judge. The judge will decide, not you. You don't decide anything. And uh, I didn't care about them, to be honest. The Piranha Club. Ron Dennis always used to talk about Formula One being the Piranha Club, didn't he? I love hearing you, you talk about uh, 2008. Uh, I remember Mark Webber and David Coulthard saying that your car was much better than their car in 2008. And of course, Sebastian Vettel went on and won at Monza. <laughs> Our car was good. It was an Adrian Newey car. Therefore, it was a very good car. But we had also a very, very good driver in comparison to others. Well, let's talk about Monza then, 2008. What are your memories of that weekend? First of all, um, when we came to Monza, I thought that we have a good car because the Ferrari engine was quite strong. And uh, from the chassis side, as I mentioned before, uh, we had a very, very good level. And uh, I expected that we were competitive and um, when it started then raining uh, on Friday, then uh, we said to the drivers, please go out, because the weather forecast um, told us that it's probably wet on Saturday as well as on Sunday. And I know Monza is not easy under wet conditions, because especially in the back of the track, um, the Lesmos, there's the wood, and the, uh, the water does not go away. You know, it comes always uh, then back. And uh, we said to the drivers, please do as many laps, drive different lines, look where the water is standing and that you are prepared for the qualifying and for the race. And then I just remember in qualifying when it came to the end um, and Sebastian was in front and then I saw that some others went out with intermediates. Then I was 
uh, clear and uh, I remember saying to Gerhard, uh, they have no chance because under these conditions you can't go out with the intermediates. And then uh, Sebastian was on pole position and uh, on Sunday the race I hoped uh, that there is another standing uh, start and it was on the start behind the safety car which I think was also important because um, it's always a risk to start under wet conditions and Sebastian drove a fantastic uh, first uh, lap, was immediately in front and then you know he had uh, um, free, uh, free air in front of him and this was very very important and uh, he drove a really really good race. How cool was he under pressure? Uh, he was, he was very cool. He was very. Uh, it looked like he was in Formula One since ten, fifteen years, and uh, I think the emotions came them later. But during driving, uh, he was just focused and concentrated, and uh, not too much uh, communication via radio. Only the most important things, and uh, this showed that uh, he was really, really very. Uh, concentrated, not making any mistake, and therefore he could win this race. I'll never forget a couple of weeks after that Monza race, I went and climbed Mount Fuji with Sebastian, and I had to get your permission. And you looked at me and you went, if he's unable to drive at the next race, I will kill you. <laughs> I remember you saying that because Sebastian had just overnight to, to the, at least to the world at large, overnight he'd become a sensation. But I guess it wasn't a surprise to you. The reason why I was worried about the Fuji Mountain is I was there. And um, it, it can be very cold up there. And it's frozen. The, the ground is frozen. And um, um, I was there in August and it was really very cold over there. We went up, we started, I think, at five o'clock in the morning. And uh, we came up there, I, I don't remember, eight o'clock or something like this, yeah. And it was around half an hour, blue sky, fantastic view. It was really unbelievable, this panorama over there, yeah. And within another 10 minutes, the clouds came and you couldn't see anything anymore. And... Uh, I'm coming from the mountains. I, I, I know what to do then. Yeah. But if people are over there and if they are unexperienced, then it's dangerous. It's not steep, but if the floor is frozen and you don't know where to go, it can become dangerous. Yeah. And uh, nowadays, I think it's, uh, people are not allowed to go uh, up to the Fujiman uh, anytime. I think it's only uh, in a separate, uh, special period over the year. I think it shuts in September, yes, isn't it? Yes, because it's so dangerous and so many yeah. people uh, died yeah. over there. And this is what I meant. Yeah? <laughs> go up there, but so, can I tell if, you <laughs> if he is being injured afterwards or something, like this, then... Uh, we will have both together a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> Franz, can I tell you what he did at the top? So we got to the top yeah. and we climbed at night because Sebastian wanted to see the sun come up. And yeah. it was beautiful, I have to say. But it was really cold. Yeah. And he said to me, how do we get down? And I said, well, I suppose we go back down the way we've come yeah. up. And he said, no, it's too cold. It'll take too long. He skied yeah. the scree. So he literally yeah. just jumped off the top 
yeah. found Mount Fuji and skied the vertical scree down. Yeah. And I just went, yeah. oh, I just thought of you. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, oh no. my goodness, what am I going to tell France? <laughs> and, and this is what I immediately had in my uh, head, thinking about such uh, um, activities, uh, because you, are so, you can be injured so fast over there. And uh, that's the danger once more. It's not, uh, they're not stones, it's not, no, it's grass over there, but if it's uh, so cold and if everything is frozen, it's simply dangerous. Do you love the Japanese culture? Because you say you were there in August during the summer break. I lived there one year in Japan. Oh, with Ralph Schumacher, I was there when uh, Ralph did Formula Nippon and GT racing and uh, we lived there over a year. And it was fantastic. I like Japan. It's a very, very interesting country. It's a, a very good culture, I must say. And the Japanese from, food for me is the best all over the world. Where did you live when you were in Japan? We lived in Yamanakako. Watashi tachi wa Yamanakako sundeimashita. You're going to have to give me, you're going to have to help me. Where is that relative to Tokyo? That's, uh, that's on the Yamanakako Lake. It's just on the, uh, on the foot, on the, on the foot of the Fuji Mountain. It's, um, 15 minutes from the racetrack, from the Fuji racetrack. It's, uh, near Gotemba. Gotemba, okay, that's yes. where we stay for the, where yes, I stay for the track. Exactly. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, Monza, you mentioned Gerhard, Gerhard Berger, who, of course, was a shareholder in the team early on, yes. wasn't he? Um, what was Gerhard like to work with? Because you'd also worked with him when you were at BMW as well. Yeah, yeah. I know Gerhard since a long time, uh, since Formula 4 times. I know him, yeah. And uh, I had and have a very, very good relationship with Gerhard, and it was such a nice time when we worked together, and it was also a very successful time. And um, uh, Gerhard is a person, you know, when he was driving, for me he was in those days uh, one of, of the fastest drivers. From the natural speed, he was not slower than Senna. He was also sometimes faster than him, but of course his... Um, uh, yeah, his work apart from the racetrack was maybe not as professional as, as it uh, should have been. And he had maybe some other things in his head, but the working, working together with Gerhard was fantastic. How integral was Gerhard in the creation of Toro Rosso? Because I know that there were some people during, you know, when Dietrich Mateschitz bought the, what was the Jaguar team, there were, there were some people saying, Dietrich, don't do Toro Rosso. It's hard enough to win in Formula One with one team, let alone two. Do you think Gerhard was instrumental in persuading Mateschitz to do the Toro Rosso thing? Uh, this I don't know. Uh, Gerhard um, is a close friend of Dietrich Mateschitz and uh, when uh, Gerhard uh, joined us in um, was 2007, then um, we discussed everything also together with Mateschitz, all the different steps. Yeah. Uh, but <coughs> Mateschitz was always uh, involved in uh, any decisions regarding Toro Rosso, as it's the case also now. Yeah. It's not that uh, uh, we make any major uh, decisions without uh, the involvement of Mateschitz. Well, look, we're going to come on to current day Toro Rosso, but I did just want to investigate your 
history and passion for motorsport because I don't know how many people know this, but you are you were the Austrian Formula Ford champion. Uh, what is it? What are we talking? 1983. Three. Mm. And then he went on to F3 and things. Now, don't be modest, but tell me about your racing career. Because I think a lot of people listening to this may not be aware that you were a driver. A driver is good. I was rolling around, yeah. Um, no, it was, you know, I was always uh, passionate about uh, motorsport. And I think everything started with Jochen Rindt, yeah, because I was a big Jochen Rindt fan and uh, knew everything read everything about Jochen Rindt and uh, wanted to try racing and bought a Formula Ford and uh, raced then in Formula Ford. And I must say in those days uh, in Austria, there was really good Formula Ford scene. Yeah? And uh, Walter Lechner uh, built up this Formula Ford uh, uh, racing field. Yeah, we had a, a national championship. We were also racing international. And um, there were always um, 20, 25, 30 cars on the starting grid. And it was a fantastic time. And I remember when I was the last time in Austria, when, during the Grand Prix, I met some friends of mine and I said, hey, what's going on with the Austrian motorsport scene? And they said to me, uh, there's no money, no money. And I said, hey, Jens, they can't have less money than us. Because I remember back... Uh, my parents had to pick me up three times because I ran out of fuel coming home. Yeah? And when I called them at two o'clock, hey, I'm in Virgil, please can you pick me up? What do you do in Virgil? Yeah, I ran out of fuel. And then they, they came to me, we put in some fuel, and then with my transport, I went home. And then my mother said, can you not put 100 shilling on the side just for a surf? I said, Mama, I did it already, but... So, but the next race we were on the starting grid but it's not only me it was the same with all the others and uh, it was also in those days we didn't sleep in hotels we all slept at the racetrack uh, we were there, we came there uh, Wednesday, Thursday and then the complete starting grid uh, all of the Formula 4 drivers we were sleeping the transporters this was normal but then F3 then came I mean, do you think friends if you'd had you know, a decent sponsor behind you, or if you'd had a break, you could have made it as a professional racing driver? Don't think so. Um, I call myself, I was a learner. After 100,000 laps, I was fast. But, uh, you know, to become a real successful driver, you must be immediately fast. And uh, I remember back, uh, there were two crucial events. One with Gerhard, he was driving before Alpha Suit Cup and then he was coming to a Formula Ford race and he was immediately uh, in front, you know, without uh, testing uh, a long time in, in, in Austria. Another, another example was Stefan Belloff. Yeah, I was racing those days. Uh, Stefan came, sat into the car and... Uh, and, and then we didn't see him anymore. Yeah, you know, and then I, I recognized from myself, hmm, they, these are the real fast guys. Yeah? And um, I don't think that I had the natural speed to become successful in Formula One or something like this. The, the mid-80s was a hell of an era, wasn't it? When you mentioned guys like Beloff, I'd love to be able to say I raced Beloff. doesn't matter if he was up the road. <laughs> Yeah, I see it in a different way. If I uh, race against someone, I want to beat him. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. True, that's true. That's yeah. why 
I guess you got involved in racing as a driver. And um, you mentioned Jochen Rint as well. Why your passion for him? Uh, Where did it come from? His 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 car control and his speed. Uh, no, but can I take you back? Was yes. there any? motor racing in your family who introduced you to, no, to no, the, no. The, the guy uh, Jochen Rint uh, where did it, it come was, from it was uh, from of course in school uh, we discussed it yeah, also friends of mine were also interested in motorsports yeah. and uh, in those days I was luckily living in Austria the races were broadcasted live yeah, with Heinz Brüller and so yeah. and I watched all these races yeah. and uh, uh, from these days onwards uh, I was more and more involved uh, in, 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 in motorsports uh, and uh, uh, had always the newest magazines I, I remember back when I went to school and uh, Thursday the power slide came out in the morning. Yeah, I went to the Kia spot, the power slide, read it in the school, and then of course the teacher was not so happy with me. And then uh, big discussions. I remember once there was a religious, the first hour, and he said, "Toast, what do you read?" And I said, "The Bible." The Bible. And he came back, and then he saw the power slide, and then he clashed it around my head. Yeah, that the pages flew away. Yeah, but yeah, this was it because I didn't care which hour we had, when we had the new power slide, I had to read the new power slide past. I had to know what's going on on the motorsports scene. This was for me much more important than anything else. Wow. And did you ever meet Jochen Rin? No, unfortunately not. I was too young. And, uh, yeah. So from that moment with Beloff in particular on the, on the, on track, where did you think your career was going to go next? You, you, as a realist, you realised you weren't going to make it as a driver. Walter Lechner, I know, had a big influence on you. But what happened next? Uh, I finished my study. I studied sports science and economics. And uh, That's I, progress, I, actually, that you finished. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you got straight involved in racing. No, no, and, no. no, yeah. no. Um, um, I, I, I worked always um, during um, holidays. Uh, in motorsports, uh, worked in Walter Lechner's instructor, but um, I said to myself, "No, the study you finish." Yeah, and uh, and I realized, or I said to myself during the study, uh, "Driving stop, because you're you're not fast enough." As soon as the study is finished, you start immediately working uh, in motorsports, and this is what I did. Yeah. Um, I, uh, when the, when the university was finished, I went to Walter Lechner and started working there. I was instructor in the Walter Lechner Racing School. Yeah. I was working together with, uh, also with Roland Ratzenberger. We shared once a car together because uh, both of us didn't have any money. Yeah. If you turned us around, nothing flew out. Yeah. And um, sometimes we, we were together instructor. And then I was team manager in Formula 4, Formula 3, uh, Opel Lotus and so on and uh, was a very very good and interesting time Can I ask you a bit more about Ratzenberger? What kind of a, a guy was he off the racetrack? Uh, off the racetrack he was as every uh, racing driver who wants to come forward very selfish Yeah, uh, but we had a good relationship together and um, worked also quite well 
together, but then he went to England and uh, then we lost a little bit uh, contact. I met him uh, when he won in Brands Hatch, the festival, I think it was 86 or 87, something like this, this yeah. uh, but there I stopped already driving by myself. I was there with uh, Michael Patels and uh, with uh, former Ford with Walter Lechner. It was the big one, wasn't it, for, for up-and-coming drivers to win the yes. Formula Ford Festival? Yes, it was. Uh, the best drivers were on the start there. And those days, the Formula Ford Festival was one of the highlights of the year. What happens next? Because do you then meet Willy Weber? Is that what happens next? No, I came then um, after I worked at Walter Lechner. I got an offer to come to Germany uh, to build a Formula 3 car. This was something completely new for me. And I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. And then we built this Eufra Formula 3 car. And um, uh, I learned a lot there, how to build a car, to, to build up a team with designers and all this kind of stuff. Yeah? And this was very, very interesting. And um, we also won with Peter Cox uh, races in the German championship. And um, So the car was good? Car was okay, car was good, yeah. And uh, was in those days we're competing against uh, mainly Reynard and uh, later then against uh, Dallara. And uh, then uh, Willy Weber came to me because we knew, it, we knew each other from Formula 3, from former times, and said, uh, he needs me, I must come to him. Yeah. And I said, Willy, really, what for you need me? Yeah, uh, I need you for Ralph. And then we met each other, uh, and then I decided to go to Willy to run his Formula 3 team. And from this time onwards, then uh, I was together with Ralph Schumacher. Okay, so you were working with Ralph Schumacher, um, but Willy's main interest at that time was obviously Michael, exactly. which is why he needed you. Yes. What kind of a boss was Willy? Willy was not a boss. Willy was a friend of mine. Uh, we had a fantastic relationship and still have one. Uh, I visit him uh, every year, uh, especially when we are at the Hockenheim ring. Yeah, visit him also this year. And um, we still have good contact with each other. And um, this was not a relationship with uh, boss and so no. Uh, he just said to me, you do this and that's it. Yeah. Was he a businessman first and a racer second? No, uh, Willy was a racer first, yeah, because, um, you know, he likes cars and he likes motorsports. And um, he was driving by himself many years. And uh, I was there uh, when he really spent a lot of money from his own uh, to finance everything for Michael and also for Ralph. Uh, because, you know, the, the Formula 3 team where Michael won then the championship uh, was everything paid by him, by Willy. And um, he really put in a lot of effort uh, for the success. And of course, later on, uh, as a businessman, he wants to get back the money. And uh, in my eyes, um, he did everything in absolutely... A professional good way my goodness he did didn't he <laughs> he got his money back and more um yeah. look so yeah, but Ralph, this sorry this he did not beforehand uh, it was an investment like yeah uh, you 
go to the stock exchange or something like this and buy it there. You don't know whether the exit goes up there or not. Yeah. He took the risk. He took he the got, risk. And, and he got uh, the reward. He got it. Yeah. How good was Ralph? Uh, Ralph as a driver was very, very good. A fantastic natural speed. And um, I think he could have won more races, maybe also a championship. Uh, he simply was not at the correct time in the correct place. But I remember back in Formula 3 or then later Formula Nippon in Japan, he came to racetracks, he, which he didn't know. And uh, on Sunday he won the race. He won the championship in the first year. And um, I remember back when he came into Formula 1, driving for Jordan on the side of Fisichella. And in his third race, he finished uh, third, uh, third position. He was on the podium. Maybe he could have won the race as well. Yeah. Now, Ralph, from his natural speed, was unbelievably fast. Yeah. And uh, also then later with his teammates, like with Montoya and, uh, and, and others, yeah, also Jensen Button, he was fast. How hard was it for him being Michael Schumacher's brother? Um, Ralph didn't care so much about this. Uh, he was he was focused to do his job the best possible way and he did it but he had also um, a life out of the Formula 1 car which Michael didn't have Michael uh, racing was everything yeah. and uh, maybe this was a little bit uh, the difference uh, but um, from the driving, from the natural speed, Ralph was very good. We had him on the podcast a few weeks back, and I asked him, was he frustrated that he didn't win more than six races? And he, he seemed very at ease with what he'd achieved in Formula One, yeah. which surprised me a little bit because I agree with you. I remember he, him being fantastically fast on occasion, particularly at Imola. He was always brilliant at Imola, but just... I thought he might be frustrated and thought, as you say, he should have won more races, maybe had a championship in him, but he seemed very accepting of what he'd done. No, he, he is relaxed and um, he knows that um, he had the abilities to do it. He knows as well that maybe sometimes he was in the wrong team and um, he accepts this and I think he made most out of it. Now, you went from working with Ralph to being in charge of BMW's trackside operations, weren't you? So tell me, Franz, why do you think it didn't work between BMW and Williams? Or perhaps it worked, but why wasn't it more successful? The correct and true answer is because the car wasn't good enough. Uh, the BMW engine was fantastic, and um, was the best engine on the starting grid, yeah. But um, on one hand side, the aero package was not as good as, as it should have been. And also from the mechanical side, the car was not as good as other cars. Nevertheless, Williams could have won the Constructors' Championship if this accident in Monza would not have happened. And uh, I remember back... It was a test. I came in in the morning in the garage. I saw the cars and I was a little bit shocked because they were not prepared in a way as I expected they should be talked to the responsible people at, at Williams and I was not happy. And uh, an hour later, Ralph had this heavy accident 
in uh, the Lesmo when the wishbone broke. And um, then they had to change the driver. I think Pizzone was then driving. And there, uh, in my opinion, Williams lost uh, the possibility to win the, at least the Constructors' Championship. And um, it was a time where the car, the chassis, was simply not on the level it should have been uh, to win the Drivers' and the Constructors' Championship. And I guess it's moments like that when... BMW maybe thought, we need to do this on our own. We can't do this with Williams. Yeah. Uh, this is how it was. And, uh, you know, I must say that in those days, um, English teams were a little bit high-headed. They thought um, they can decide everything. And I remember back when I said uh, to Frank, you have a, a gold clump in your hands. Don't, don't let him fall. Yeah? Because a partner like BMW, you get once, but not twice. Yeah? But then um, the cooperation worked not in a way as maybe we all would have wished. And uh, BMW didn't accept this anymore. And therefore, it went in the direction... Um, to do it either by themselves or uh, to work together with Sauber. Were you tempted to go with them to Sauber or when, when did the chats with Red Bull start? Uh, the chats with Red Bull started um, quite early. Uh, Matischitz called me and said, I need you in Italy. And um, then I said, yeah, but uh, I have a contract with... Uh, BMW, but in my contract it was, uh, if I make a decision before October, I can go free. Uh, and then I talked to Mario Tyson, and uh, he accepted. And then I decided uh, uh, to go to Feinza. Franz, why do you think Mateschitz phoned you? Uh, I was in contact with him um, since 1993, 1994. Uh, in those days, um, it was a discussion to go to Sauber, yeah. But um, I was there for an interview, but we didn't come together. And uh, then I was always in contact with Mateschitz yeah, because he negotiated as well deals with, uh, there was Jordan, uh, Arrows, and so on and so on, yeah. And... Um, um, it was also once in discussion uh, to go to Red Bull uh, racing, uh, but this was too late uh, because, as I mentioned before, my contract said uh, I have to tell it until the end of October, and this was done in January or something like this. Uh, and one principle in my life is I will never break a contract. And uh, therefore I said, sorry, it's not possible to go to England because I have still a contract with BMW. And uh, then Dietrich bought another team and <laughs> called me. Yeah. For you, by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think he bought another team? Um, I think that Bernie and Max uh, convinced him to do this, yeah? uh, because uh, they knew that uh, Minardi got bankrupt, and uh, therefore they looked for someone. And... Um, the original philosophy was, okay, 
Matches that I buy the team, but only if we can use synergies and Toro Rosso must educate young drivers. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for me, yeah? because I do not want to have two teams who do the research and development and uh, all this kind of work which is necessary for a uh, Formula One team. And this is how we started. Yeah, this is what I mentioned before. In 1996, we drove with the cars which uh, Red Bull Racing was driving the year before. And this is how everything started. Otherwise, Mateschitz would not have bought the second team because it doesn't make sense. So it was all about developing young drivers. And yeah. over the last 14 years, you've had 14 drivers through the team. Who has been the best, the most impressive driver you've had on your books? Of course, if you look to the results, it was Vettel, yeah, because he won four times uh, the championship. Yeah. No, no, but while but he was with you i'm talking about the drivers when they were with you who impressed you the most yeah yeah um of course sebastian uh but i must say also other drivers were quite good uh, in those days uh, or at the beginning like uh, max verstappen uh, also daniel ricardo then um, um, i must also say that at the beginning uh, boemi did a good job um Eric uh, Van, Jean-Eric Van was quite fast and therefore he won twice now the Formula E Championship, also Boemi won the Formula E Championship. Uh, there were a couple of good drivers in there um, and um, I'm quite happy that uh, Vieto Rosso could work together with them. Yeah, And now uh, this year with Alex Albon he is also um, very fast and I must also say that Daniel Kiet and Pierre Gasly are doing a good job yeah. and Daniel Ricciardo was fast in those days good drivers Which of the guys who have been on your books has frustrated you the most in terms of you look at them and you go you have so much talent but we're not able to harness it and, and Yeah of course this was speed Scott Speed. In those days, yes, because he, he was not so bad from his uh, driving style, and uh, but his attitude was simply not good enough. So he was quick. Yeah, now, he was I remember. Quick. Sometimes was he was quick. Franz, it's been a while. 2007 was when he was with you. I remember, mm. was it the European Grand Prix? It was at the Nürburgring. Oh, the Nürburgring. Yeah. What happened between you and, you and Scott? Yeah, yeah this is a, a longer story, yeah and um, started already in 2006 uh, when I was not so happy with uh, uh, behavior, with physical fitness and all this kind of stuff. And then as usual, I talked to the drivers and say, but they have to improve. And uh, for me, one most important part is uh, that the learning ingredient uh, must come up. Yeah, that you really see that the driver makes good progress and um, you tell them what to do and if they don't, don't accept this, I'm also fine with this, but they must bring the results. Not accepting it and not bringing results, then the drivers have a problem with me and I, I said to him simply after uh, Nürburgring when he went into the gravel bed, uh, I just said to him, take all your belongings, uh, take the next flight to America, one-way ticket. I don't want to see you anymore. Basta. 
<laughs> that, that was it. That was the end of his... Yeah. Okay, so it, as you say, it had been building up over the previous yeah. year. You tried to improve his attitude and his fitness and it wasn't coming. And Yeah, there were different uh, topics coming together as usually. Yeah. The perfect storm. He had, a, he, he had a fast name. Yeah, he had a fast name. And he was, sometimes he was real fast. It was not that he was not skilled enough. I think it was too early for him. He, he, he didn't recognize how much work it needs to be in Formula One and to stay in Formula One. I always said to the drivers, look, you are now in Formula One. Now, the real hard work starts. Uh, what you did before is a little bit children garden, yeah? but now you really must work. And some drivers understand it. They take it serious. And then uh, hopefully they have a successful career. And other drivers are not clever enough. They don't understand it. And then they are out. As simple as that. Now, you've just told me the Nürburgring story about Scott Speed. So when I say to you, what is your management style? What would you say? My management style is uh, be 100% transparent. To talk to the people. Give them targets. Discuss everything. And then I want to see the results. Are you quite hard? I don't, I don't think that uh, I am hard. Yeah? I, I explain everything beforehand. And uh, if people then say, yes, we can do this, then I expect that they do it. Do you think with these young guys, you are you're, you're a psychologist almost as much as you are their boss in terms of trying to help boost them and help them on their way? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, every driver uh, is an individuum. You can't come up with a general, uh, valid uh, style of working because every driver is different. And you have to understand this driver. And uh, for this, you have to take time. You have to... Uh, talk with him, I go with them for lunch, for dinner, talk in between, try to get also some leisure time with them, whatever, just to find out um, how is their way of thinking. And um, resulting out of, th of this, uh, you have then uh, to guide them and to show them the correct way. And, um, you know, this is, as I mentioned before, for every driver, uh, different. It, uh, it's different from the nutrition side, it's different from the physical training, it's different from setting up the car, and, and so on and so on. It's uh, rarely two, two drivers are uh, the same individuals uh, that you can treat them in the same way. And how frustrating does it get that every time you do a good job and develop a young driver and they become any good, you lose them? And, and actually it happens on the technical side as well. I mean, look at what James Key's gone and there have been instances all the way through. No, uh, also from the driver's side, uh, that's absolutely not a frustration. That's a good sign. I would be frustrated if Red Bull Racing uh, would need to take drivers from the outside because uh, then Toro Rosso uh, would not make a good job. This would frustrate me. As long as they take drivers from us, that's fine for me. And regarding uh, technical stuff, changing a team, uh, that's nothing new, that has nothing to do with uh, Toro Rosso. This is uh, 
Formula One behavior or uh, general uh, people go from one company to another company. Yeah. But doesn't it get frustrating from the point of view you're trying to develop your racing team, you're trying mm. to evolve, you're trying to aim higher in the constructors' championship, yet you've got one hand tied behind your back because all the good drivers, the guys who are going to deliver the points, yeah, but, you lose. Uh, we will see now. I don't know what's the end of the the end result of the season, but up to now. Uh, Toro Rosso never have been so competitive as uh, we are this year. Uh, we are in the sixth position, the Constructors' Championship, just six points behind Renault, four points uh, ahead of uh, Racing Point. And um, uh, if we can keep this position or even maybe fight for the fifth position, this would be uh, a real uh, fantastic performance from the team side. And therefore, I think we are in the correct way there. And once more, that uh, people leave, go to other teams, uh, that's normal, but then uh, you must be flexible enough from the management side to find other people who can do uh, the same job or even a better one. Yeah. And um, currently from the infrastructure at the Rosso, um, I'm quite satisfied if we can uh, continue uh, in this way. How often do you disagree with Helmut Marko about what to do with the driver? I must say, currently, the last um, one, two years, rarely, we are, we are most often in agreement. It was more difficult in former times, but currently, we are on the same line. And I guess, do you and Helmut go back a long way, the sort of Austrian racing? Yeah, yeah, I know Helmut since, since many, many years. Yeah, and uh, I was going to call you Austrian racing royalty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know there's a good history from <laughs> uh, people coming from Austria, and especially now in Formula One. And uh, did you know Helmut before the Red Bull involvement? And yeah, yeah, I knew him from former times. I knew him from Formula Three. We're fighting against him, uh, and and. Um, uh, yeah, it was Formula 3 and then I know him from also Formula 3000 uh, we met sometimes uh, no, I know him since a long time mm. What is it about Austria and Formula 1 actually? Look at the positions of power Toto Wolff yourself Helmut Marko it's in the water, it's in the air I'm trying to think, who have I missed in terms of people in key positions in Formula 1 but yeah, Alexander Woods is also there. Of course, yeah. 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 And, and Gerhard Berger, of course, is not currently in Formula 1. Yeah. But uh, no, no, there is a uh, good history. Of, uh, Do you think it all goes back to Rint? I think so. Uh, I know it from Helmut because he said to me, uh, without Rint, he, he wouldn't maybe not be in, in, in motorsport because if I remember right, he said to me, he went with Rint to a race at the Nürburgring. Yeah and watching the race and then Rind was driving and then Helmut said okay if he drives I drive as well and so yeah and um, yeah the other driver the other people I don't know so much uh, how they came to Formula 1 or to motorsports yeah. but um, Formula 1 has in Austria a big history and Formula 1 is a kind of culture in Austria and uh, therefore uh, people are really very, very interested what's going on in Formula One. And uh, this has for sure an impact uh, to the people who are living there, who are watching it. And then 
they say, oh, I also want to go to Formula One, I want to work there. Yeah. Did Nicky, Nicky Lauda, have as much of an... Did he make an impression on you in the way that Rint did as well? Yeah, uh, Nicky's... You know, when Nicky came to Formula One, and uh, I was much older, and I saw it from another point of view, and uh, what Nicky did was, uh, was unbelievable. You know, um, winning the championship, having this heavy accident, yeah, and coming always back, and how he did everything, uh, it was fantastic. And um, I, I really uh, like to talk with Nicky because he, uh, he understood Formula One so well. And um, he could give you an advice, and uh, he was not someone who was... Um, Talking around, he came immediately to the point, uh, and uh, I was lucky enough uh, to be together with, with him at some marketing events, and uh, of course also at the racetrack. Uh, sometimes we met each other and talked to each other. Yeah, but uh, Nicky was a fantastic person, yeah, really. And I must also say I miss him. And uh, when we have our meetings, um, uh, uh, a person like Nicky, who knows. Um, Formula One from all the different angles uh, there are not so many and being so clever there are not so many being around here here we all miss Nicky don't we Um, final thoughts on Toro Uh, how has Faenza evolved developed changed since you've been there I went to the old Bernardi and I remember it was just a bunch of porter cabins really wasn't it what's it like down there now it's, you know, when I came there the first time, I was totally shocked, really, <laughs> and, and, and then uh, started well, to Was work. there ever a discussion about moving from Faenza or...? or? No, uh, this discussion was never because, uh, as far as I know, Mateschitz promised in those days, Minardi to stay there at least five years, and uh, we built up then the infrastructure. Uh, you know, at the beginning... Um, everything was completely running in a different way because we got everything from Red Bull Technology. But then from 2009, 2010 onwards, uh, we had to do everything by ourselves. But we didn't have the infrastructure for this. Yeah? Before we were more or less a race team. And then uh, we had to build up everything. Yeah? And this was um, a very interesting but also a hard job. And um, we reached now a reasonably good level. Uh, but uh, it took a lot of effort from all the employees and from everyone, yes. How many people are in the team? We have currently fixed employees around 380, and during the winter months uh, we get another uh, 100, 120 contractors. These are mainly uh, people working in the lamination room or trimmers, all this kind of stuff just uh, uh, in production to finish the car in time. And you've still got the wind tunnel in England? We have the wind tunnel in Pista. It's our own wind tunnel. And there are as well working 100 people. Do you think you suffer being in Italy with Ferrari? Uh, Do you think people want to work for Ferrari, not Toro so you don't get perhaps the quality of people? Yeah, of course. Uh, people want to work at Ferrari because uh, Ferrari in Italy is something special. Yeah, Ferrari has a fantastic image, Ferrari has a fantastic uh, history and Ferrari's emotion, Ferrari is uh, 
uh, in Italy, uh, behind the Pope, maybe the most important thing. Yeah. So, and um, or maybe in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Of course, Italy is not uh, the easiest place for a Formula One team because uh, to find uh, uh, to bring experienced engineers to find uh, is difficult, and uh, uh, it's for sure easier to have a Formula One team in England because they are quite close together. But uh, one advantage is you don't have such a big uh, fluctuation of people because once they are there, then they stay there. Yeah, and. Um, Now it's easier because uh, we have, um, I must say, very, very good Italian engineers living in Faenza. And um, I don't expect uh, they have their families there. Don't expect uh, that they will then leave to go to another team. Yeah. And do you think after 2021, when we get the new rules coming in, Toro Rosso can become, well, what are, they, what are you calling yourselves? Alpha Tauri. Alpha Tauri, yes. Alpha yeah. Tauri. That's yeah. from next year, isn't it? 2020. Yes. Uh, what is Alpha Tauri? Can you remind it's me? It's a, a fashion brand from Red Bull. So we're going to have two alphas on the grid. Uh, Alpha Tauri is written A-L-P-H and not F. Ah, okay. It's different. Yeah. We, do you pronounce it differently? I don't know. But, um, but from 2021, do you think Toro Rosso can become... I don't know, podium contenders. Is that a, is that a, a realistic ambition? Um, from 2021 onwards, I hope, of course, as every team principal does. Yeah. But realistically, uh, such midfield teams like the Rosso have a chance from 2023 onwards. Why? Because currently the top teams, let me say the top three teams, will spend a hell of a money for the development of the car for 2021. That means this year and already next year, they will push all their effort into the development of the 21 car. And uh, they have three, four times the money the midfield teams will have. That means I don't expect a big difference in 2021. Cost cap is coming 2021. That means uh, these top teams have then to reduce the number of their employees. They will have to reduce the research and development. And then hopefully the teams will come closer together. But as I mentioned before, I expect it's not before 2023 because 2021 they have the advantage, still the advantage from 2020. 19 and 20, when they can spend as much money as uh, they like. In 2021, they can only spend um, the money within the cost cap, which will reduce the development. 2022, once more. And then I think that uh, the mid-class team will come closer together. And this is what we have to achieve. Uh, you know, Formula One is entertainment. And um, uh, people sometimes forget this, that the show is the most important thing. Now, Formula One, we know that technology is decisive. The DNA of Formula One is always, uh, should also be uh, the peak of the technology. 
but we must go away a little bit from this. We must find a middle way. And uh, the middle way must be that uh, uh, cars are coming closer together because the fans don't care whether you have a carbon gearbox or a halo gearbox or whether you have some special things in the suspension. They want to see interesting races. They want to see close races. They want to see overtaking maneuvers. This is what they want to see. And they want to, want to see. And they do not want to have a world champ uh, four or five races before the end of the year. And uh, there uh, we have to come to. And um, I must say that Liberty Media is doing a good job because it's not an easy one. Uh, you know, in former times, the top teams got uh, much more money than the others. As also the money distribution was totally unfair. And um, to change all this uh, is not an easy exercise. And uh, Liberty Media is pushing very hard. And I think in the meantime, they have achieved a good compromise between the top teams and the mid-class teams, uh, A, from the cost cap side, and B, also from the money distribution. And from the technical regulation and sporting regulation, we are also coming there. And, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. and do you think Red Bull is committed to Formula One long-term? Because every now and again, Metashitz likes to scare us, and we hear threats of maybe you know how he might pull out and things like that. Do you yeah, Red Bull, Red Bull is uh, of course interested in Formula One uh, when uh, the package is competitive. Uh, Red Bull is a brand who wants to win and who has to win because they won four times the championship. Yeah, must not forget this. And uh, uh, if the package is competitive enough. If uh, there's a power unit supplier um, who provides the team with a real, real competitive uh, power unit, then and if um, Red Bull Racing is fighting for victories and for championships, then I don't see a reason why Red Bull should stop. Because we must not forget, Formula One is a global player, and uh, uh, for the brand awareness. Uh, from the marketing side, I don't know any other sport, kind of sport, uh, which uh, works so efficient as Formula One. And therefore, uh, uh, we will see what the future brings. But once more, if Red Bull Racing is competitive, then um, I hope at least that Red Bull will stay there. Yeah, well, let's hope that too. And just a few final thoughts. Franz, as you've... You know, as you say, you, you're at school, you were a, a, an avid fan of Jochen Rint. He's the reason you got into the sport. You then drove, you then worked for Willy Weber and BMW and Ralph Schumacher, and then you climb up the ladder. Is your view of Formula One the same now as a team principal as it was when you first got involved with Ralph all those years ago? Of course, um, now I see many things from a different point of view because I have much more experience. But um, uh, the love for Formula One is still the same. And um, I enjoy to come to the races. I like to see the cars. I many times go to the garage to see the cars because look to the details and how sophisticated everything is. Uh, and um, I like the races, 
Yeah, and um, um, nothing has changed uh, from this uh, point of view. And uh, of course, Formula One is uh, offers an environment which is changing very rapidly. And uh, it's, Formula One is not only the peak of motorsports regarding now technology, regarding the speed. No, it's also in many, many other areas like marketing, like communication uh, with social medias now. Yeah, and you always have uh, to bring you up to speed uh, that you don't miss anything. Yeah? And uh, this makes Formula One so exciting. And um, I'm always looking forward uh, for the next race, for the next season, and thinking what can we do better, where do we have to improve, find new people, do this, do that. Yeah. It's a never-ending story. And um, Formula One is uh, a job for 365 days a year. You can't do anything else. And that's its fascination. It is a never-ending story, isn't it? Yeah, it's the fascination. You know, it's... Uh, um, uh, my wife sometimes says, um, when we have this uh, shutdown during the summer months, yeah, and then she, when she is coming with a catalogue or something, and then says, so now we have to, uh, to do a work. You have to do something different. Yeah? Go to holidays or whatever. Because your hobby is stopped now, yeah. And uh, it's for me, uh, it's it's something special, and uh, it's the passion for to work in Formula One. For me, it's a privilege to work in Formula One. Yeah, therefore, I never can understand when people are complaining about 21, 22 races or whatever. We are a race team, and this is our job, and uh, that means to go do as many races as possible. Well, friends, your passion for Formula One is infectious and I've loved chatting to you thank you very much for your time okay thank you I don't know about you but I learned a lot about Franz and Torosso during that conversation his backstory is a fascinating one not least his own racing career and I'm sure he's not the only person involved in F1 today who spent more time daydreaming about F1 than concentrating on his maths homework at school. I also admire Franz's straightforwardness. He's a straight talker. What you see is what you get, and that must make him a very good sounding board for young drivers passing through his team. He'll tell them exactly what he thinks, which is what they need to hear if they're to improve. Thanks for your time, friends. It was great to chat, and thanks too to Torosso for their hospitality. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with yet another big name from the world of F1. Until then, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Mario Andretti, the legend that is Mario Andretti. I listen to Mario Andretti while driving to work, says Dawid Dreisalowski on Twitter. Miss my exit? took a different route, noticed some other way. But as Mario shows, there are many ways to reach your goal as long as you're driven. Captivating chat. Well, thank you, Dawid. I was hanging off his every word too. And thanks for the feedback. And please keep it coming because we love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.